back in the fur shed for episode 32 of the Trapping Today podcast. Thank you for tuning in. It's me, Jeremiah Wood. You can find more about me at trappingtoday.com. I'm just an average everyday trapper. Happens to run a website there and uh, started a podcast a little while back. Um, absolutely having a blast. Thank you guys for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Thank you for writing in and giving me feedback on the podcast. Uh, we are growing, guys. Um, it is summer 2018 as I record this, and numbers uh, are slowly but steadily growing. So more people uh, discovering the podcast and tuning in, and I hope you will continue to listen in. So uh, I had a couple of questions and comments on things people would like to see. Uh, Jeff mentioned uh, more about biology of different animals, different fur bears, and uh, we are going to get into uh, a lot of that. Tonight we're actually going to discuss in this podcast episode a little bit about Martin and Fisher and uh, cycles of food availability and how um, that they kind of interact and, and how their interaction between predator and prey and different food abundances affects how they are how easily trapped they are so that'll be later on um, but first um, a new new listener uh, just wrote in and he was interested in bobcats so I wanted to learn more about bobcat um, trapping he is uh, Chris from North Carolina and uh, great to hear from you Chris hope that you uh, check out the the past uh, podcast episodes uh, that we've done here. Um, I think I did I did one on Bobcats that was back in, it was episode 13, back in February. And uh, it didn't go into it at all, into Bobcat trapping. It was just talking about Bobcat populations uh, <clears throat> nationwide and the different uh, trends and uh, how different states are managing your bobcat numbers and everything. So uh, I might give just a little bit of background that might be kind of interesting. But Chris was more interested in specifics about bobcat trapping. It'll be, you know, first time out trapping cats, uh, and he's he's in the, uh, in the southeast. <clears throat> so I will start by telling you that I am not a bobcat trapper. Um... Uh, and uh, I think it's okay to admit when we don't know what we're talking about and to go and find people who do. So I will tell you a little bit about my bobcat trapping experience. Uh, I, we, we don't have bobcats in, Maine, in northern Maine to speak of. Uh, in eastern, down east Maine, southern Maine, central Maine, there are, there are populations of bobcats that are fairly abundant. But in northern Maine, we get so much snow, and the habitat here has changed so much from timber harvesting practices, forest practices in the woods, that has made the habitat much more suitable for Canada lynx. So the habitat combined with the deep snow uh, and the low deer populations that we have, which is, again, part of that habitat change, uh, that all combines to make it not a great place to be a bobcat. So, in fact... uh, probably uh, the past five, past six years since uh, I've been back up here, I have seen probably between 100 and 200 sets of lynx tracks and maybe two, maybe two or three bobcat sets of bobcat tracks. 
Um, so links are, are much more common here. So we, we can trap Bobcat. Uh, and actually, going back historically, there were a lot of Bobcats in this area. That was back when we had deep woods, big mature forests, and lots of deer. The bobcats actually preyed on deer. And if any of you guys have heard of the name V.E. Lynch, or Virgil E. Lynch, uh, he was also called Bobcat Lynch. And he actually uh, built his reputation as a bobcat hunter and trapper in uh, this part of the state. Uh, not 20 miles from where I sit right now as the crow flies. So it was kind of cool. Uh, he was uh, he was a big time trapper, and that was back. That would have been back in the 1930s, 40s, maybe a little bit into the 50s. And since then, the bobcat numbers have steadily declined. Uh, you know, when he started, he they were bounty bounty hunting for cats, and <clears throat> now we we have very few bobcats around. So I don't have experience trapping bobcats. In fact, most of our trapping regulations are designed to avoid taking lynx, uh, which also makes it hard to catch cats. Now, that being said, I did get out in trapping in Montana for bobcats. Uh, I had a short excursion when I lived out there, and I decided I wanted to trap bobcats. I got really excited about it. I, I wanted to learn how to do it and put out a line and everything. And so I, you know, I, I went to a couple conventions and I learned a little bit from people. Uh, and the, the, but I bought the equipment that I was going to need and everything. And then the biggest thing that I, the, the most productive thing that I did was I bought a DVD from John Graham, uh, who's out in Montana. Uh, it, was, it was just called Bobcat Trapping. He still sells it on his website. I think it's furcountrylures.com. And uh, you could probably find it a few other places. But uh, I bought John Graham's DVD and I watched that uh, a couple times. Uh, and, and it was incredibly informative. And it showed me exactly what I needed to do. And when I get done watching that DVD, I, I went out and I, I put together a bunch of equipment that I would need and set everything up the way that, that he did it. A lot of the sets were basically in this he was in this rimrock country and kind of the the break uh, sagebrush habitat uh, that you find in in eastern montana sagebrush junipers lots of rock cliffs um, really really neat country but also very unproductive kind of barren country as well but he was trapping bobcats in these areas and a lot of what he did was uh walkthrough sets uh, on the edge of these rim rocks and uh, just made kind of paths for the cat to walk through. Uh, had a very uh, uh, outstanding visual attractor and <clears throat> set up, uh, had a certain way to guide him into the set, a little place to put the lure and so on. And he catch tons of cats in these walkthrough sets. So I went out and I found a big chunk of land in south central Montana near where I lived. It was a little bit of a drive, but it was the closest place where I could find, and I thought I was onto something because I I saw the same habitat that John Graham had in his video where he's catching all these cats, and I found a big chunk. It was BLM land. It's a place called Hollenbeck Draw, it was south of Bridger, Montana, 
and there there was it was all public land so I go out there didn't have to worry about uh, trying to get access um, permission and everything and I I went out and I made I found a bunch of habitat I scouted a little bit I really didn't see much sign and I didn't think much of it but I was like I you know I saw some rabbits which they they feed on a lot out there and I I saw it was just textbook bobcat habitat it just looked so perfect from all where all those western guys trap cats and so I went I went through and I made I ran a line uh, 30 about 30 sets uh, all footholds uh, most of them those walk through sets a few dirt holes but but pretty much uh, a few flat sets but pretty much all those those walk through sets on the edge of the rim rocks and I ran that line for uh, a good three weeks uh, probably three and a half weeks uh, 30 to 35 sets and I didn't catch a single bobcat I caught one fox and one coyote so that was quite an experience and um, if you think back to that story you can you you probably are thinking of one thing that I mentioned uh, that was was probably a key it was the key to me being unsuccessful in that trap line I didn't see a lot of sign and again I I didn't think much of it when I learned to coyote trap here in Maine it was like they were everywhere. We didn't even have to look for sign. They, their sign would be everywhere. And we just set, make sets and we'd catch coyotes. Well, that wasn't the case here. And as I got to talking to other people about it and some of the locals, I, I kind of mentioned, you know, I was having a hard time and I couldn't catch any cats and I didn't understand it. And uh, a couple people were like, oh, yeah, there's no bobcats up there. They're, yeah, we've known forever. That's just not cat country. They're they're just not there. They're down in near the farm ground more. Um, you should trap on this guy's place or over there, or over here. <laughs> so, so anyway, it was a quite a learning experience and uh, uh, an epic failure for me. Uh, but I will always have that experience and and uh, I will never forget it. I would love to uh, to go back there, um, but not to bobcat trap, I guess. <laughs> So unless I scouted and found them, maybe, maybe they cycle, maybe some years there's a few cats in there, or maybe you just got to go, um, go somewhere else and be willing to change your locations. So, uh, Chris, if you're listening in, um, one of the biggest things you mentioned that you've seen sign, uh, absolutely. One of the biggest things is, is trap where you find Bobcat sign. Make sure you know there are cats there to trap for. So that leads me to the second part of of the ideas about trapping bobcats. Uh, I would say get get a good DVD. There, you can go on YouTube. Um, there, there's it's kind of interesting. So the trapping, just think going back, the trapping world is changing. It's changing pretty fast. Well, the whole the world is changing. The way we consume information as a society it has been and is continuing to change at a rapid pace. Trapping just happens to be a little bit behind that pace because you know it's dominated by a lot of old timers that uh, don't necessarily like to change. So, trapping is one of the only industries left where you'll see. Uh, dominated by DVD sales, um, instructional videos, and in most other uh, 
industries are done through online courses now. But trapping, you still have a lot of DVDs. That is going away. Um, it's just, it's going to take time for it to phase out. But the, in the meantime, we're kind of in a place where nobody's really gone fully online with paid courses or paid videos. Uh, Clint Locklear has done it. Um, I th he's the only one that I know of that has so far. So, so most of the guys that are really qualified and have good information and good DVDs are their video is all DVD, physical DVD, and it, they're pretty expensive, thirty to forty dollars typically. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there you have uh, thousands and thousands of videos on YouTube with information from anybody who can just throw a video up and doesn't need to have any credibility. They may be really sharp, they may have a lot of experience, or they may not. But they're not vetted, and we you really don't know. You're kind of uh, gambling in that case so you have those two extremes and you have almost nothing in the middle where uh, someone who who you know is credible you can get information from at a lower cost and um, <clears throat> and have that available somewhere other than just buying a physical DVD but that that is changing but for now I would say if you want to learn how to bobcat trap get a DVD get a couple of DVDs uh, they're going to be worth the cost um, for the information you'll learn. Now, if you're looking at Bobcat Trap in the southeast, I would not get John Graham's Western DVD uh, to educate you on trapping southeast Bobcats. It's really informative, but the habitat is so vastly different. You're not going to see you're not going to see almost anything like that eastern Montana country in uh, in the Appalachian Mountains. So what I would do is look for somebody who, who is qualified, who's very well established and has trapped a lot of bobcats in an area where you are going to trap with similar type of habitat and get their DVD, get a couple of them, and, uh, <clears throat> and, and that should give you a little eye-opener. Short of taking instruction from someone, that'll be a good eye-opener as far as getting, um, getting started. Like I said, if I had been on cats, after I watched John Graham's DVD, that was just exactly to a T the same habitat that I was looking at where I was trapping. If the cats had been there with those sets, I have no doubt in my mind I I would have stacked them up. I would have done really well. But the um, the missing piece of the puzzle was, was the lack of bobcats. Now, one to mention is Mark June. Uh, Mark is a really interesting character. He is... Uh, a trained biologist who chose to become a professional trapper which is pretty cool unique and he has really high quality videos that are well produced actually I'd, I'd like to have Mark on the podcast uh, interview him someday uh, when I get set up and start doing interviews and um, <clears throat> start growing the podcast more uh, so anyway if you pick up one of his DVDs uh, maybe maybe mention it that you heard it here heard about it here on the podcast uh, but if you go to Mark June, I think it's markjunelures.com or markjunelures.com, you can pick that up. You can get it at F&T. He's got a bunch of uh, places his videos are. Very well produced. He's actually lowered the price of his DVDs to kind of try and and get in, he, understanding this new era where things are changing 
and uh, the market really is much different. Um, he's adapting to that. <clears throat> Maybe caught a little bit of flack for for lowering his prices from other DVD sell sellers, but anyway, uh, that'd be a really good one because he has a Bobcat DVD where he traps in Nebraska, Louisiana, Texas, and Georgia. So you're going to see a lot of different varieties of habitats, and, and it's probably going to open your eyes um, to a lot of different situations. Clint Locklear has a DVD called Cat Collector. I think that's four hours long. It's pretty expensive. It's like 45 or 50 bucks. But again, you know, the information you get from these uh, is going to go a long ways. Um, and and that's similar. I, th I don't know all where he filmed it because I haven't watched um, I haven't watched Cat Collector but uh, Clint is from Tennessee uh, I assume there's some footage from in Tennessee uh, but I don't know that for sure he does a lot of bobcat trapping in Texas so uh, James Lord uh, he is he's on uh, on Trapper Man quite a bit he's got a he's in from the southeast and he has uh a bobcat trapping video you might check out. I don't have any idea if it's any good or how many cats he catches, um, but it's one to, th to check out. And then finally, the one that I would probably get, uh, not for prob not necessarily for quality or anything, as far as the production and and actually entertainment value, but for pure information and experience, I would go for Johnny Thorpe's Eastern Bobcat Trapping DVD. Uh, so check that out, and I think you'll gain a lot of information there. I just pulled up a little bit on North Carolina Bobcats, and a little bit of just really brief information for for those, because you're talking about you know looking for places. Uh, to me, if you see sign, then that's where you need to trap for bobcats, there or that type of habitat. So, so don't get too caught up in, you need to be in this specific habitat. The cats will tell you where they are especially in the wintertime. Now, I looked at a few studies on bobcats and habitat use, and they definitely change their habitat use uh, from some, between summer and winter. So different times of year, they're in different types of habitat. And they also adapt where they go based on uh, what prey items are available. So if rabbits are really abundant, um, a couple of years, they'll be in those areas that support rabbit habitat. So just generally, North Carolina bobcats, uh, you've, they're in, uh, in the eastern part of the state. They, they're found in wooded habitats of the coastal plain and mountains. And then in the western part of the state, which is more of the mountains and Appalachia, they're found typically in mature forests with openings or early successional forests nearby. So the key here is edge. So the mature forest is areas where bobcats like to hang out and they have shelter and cover and they can get away from um, from other predators. Primarily predators going to be man in this case. But uh, the other thing with mature forests is they typically have large dead trees uh, and, and root wad areas where the cats can den. So they have, have denning habitat available, big hollow logs, and so on. So so they need that mature forest, but they also need uh, young forest nearby 
that supports the food. So it'll support mice. Rabbits and mice are, are the bulk of the bobcat diet. They also eat deer. They eat all kinds of different rodents and and uh, different types of critters. Uh, but but look for edges. So look for mature forests with openings next to it and find those edges. Find travelways near and along those edges and then look for sign in those travelways. If you find all three of those things, um, you find the habitat, you find the travelways, and you find the sign, you are going to catch cats. And then those DVDs should help you as far as actually making, constructing the set. I hope that information was helpful to anybody looking to trap cats. I'm going to take a quick break, and then we are going to get into the uh, Martin and Fisher uh, and Mast. So should be an interesting topic. Mustelids and Mast. Mustelids and Mast. What the heck is that all about? Is that even a trapping topic? Well, if you know what Mustelids are, they are members of the weasel family. And mast is fruit of nut trees um, or nuts. So we're talking about Martin, Fisher, and Weasel and food. And this is an interesting little topic. And it comes from uh, something that I've think, thought about for a very long time. And it just happened that somebody brought it up on in a topic on a forum on Trapper Man the other day. A guy named Joe Panani is his uh, or Panati is his screen name, and Panati is Marty Marty's Panati is the uh, scientific name for the Fisher. You guys, a Fisher trapper in the Adirondacks of of New York, and was talking about this whole mast thing. And this mast relationship with with these fur bears is something that's very unique and specific to uh, to the Northeast, and and really parts of the Northeast where there's a lot of trapping for these mustelids. So the topic was about uh, an article that I wrote a, a while back and I covered this in a podcast episode. Oh, it was sometime this winter. So if you look back on the different on the on the past episodes, you'll find one that was talking about my Martin and Fisher trap line and struggling um because it was uh, a year with lots of lots of food available and the, the Martin Fisher just wouldn't go into the sets. What made this even more difficult was the fact that we're using these Lynx exclusion devices. I think the article was titled Lynx Exclusion Devices on the Martin and Fisher Trapline. And I talked about how I saw tons and tons of Martin and Fisher sign on my trapline and as soon as there was snow on the ground, you could see them coming in to the bait, seeing the box and circling around the box and not wanting to enter the little four inch by four inch hole um, or a, a little or five inch by six inch, depending on the type of exclusion device I had. And they just would not go in there to get to the bait. Uh, they weren't hungry enough to, to squeeze through that hole and take the risk of, of getting all the way in that box. So it was a struggle, and it was very, very challenging to actually be successful uh, trapping Martin and Fisher that way. And I wrote an article about it, and and was trying to figure it out. And this Joe guy brought brought this up, and uh, for discussion, it was just a great topic for discussion. So 
I want to go back to the whole mass thing, and we'll we'll kind of go dig in a little more about how this uh, how this affects us as trappers in these areas. So so mast the definition is the fruit of beech, oak, chestnut, and other forest trees. So mast is food. Now when we're talking about Martin and Fisher, Martin the the range of Martin is basically Alaska, Canada and only extreme north or high elevation parts of the US. So Maine, about half of Maine, uh, the northern half is Martin and Fisher habitat or Mar is Martin habitat. Just little parts of Vermont and New Hampshire and then uh, the Adirondacks, upstate New York, uh, there's an area there that has Martin. Not very many of them, but it has Martin. And then you go all the way over to the western states. Actually, a few in the like UP of Michigan and, and northern Minnesota, those areas have some Martin as well. And then you get into Montana, Idaho, uh, just in the mountains, they have uh, small patches of Martin. Wyoming in the mountains, there's a little strip of Martin range. Uh, Utah, just the n northeast corner, northeast part of Utah in the Uinta Mountains. I I've actually trapped Martin there. Awesome experience. And then uh, a little bit of Northern California and Oregon. But Martin really, you know, they're a Canadian and Alaskan species. And, and then these Northern climates, uh, the reason for that is lots of snow. Uh, Martin are, Martin compete with Fisher and Fisher don't like lots of snow. So snow depth areas uh, typically hold the Fisher back and the Martin uh, are do well in those places. The Fisher range is basically um, they're pretty common in the eastern US uh, forest. They it can be young or old forest but they need uh, they need tree cover. And then there's some patches of fisher uh, in, in the western U.S. Some of the same places that have Martin there have a few fisher. Very, very uncommon. And then, uh, of course, uh, portions of Canada, big portions of Canada have fisher. Alaska does not. So they don't go too far north and they, go, uh, they don't go too far west. And then weasels, uh, weasels are much more widespread, have, have a, a much greater range, uh, but you have, again, you have the short-tailed and long-tailed weasels, uh, two different subspecies of weasels. I am very fortunate in that where I trap, we have Martin, Fisher, short-tailed weasel, long-tailed weasel all together in the same area. We have a, a variety of forest habitat, and we, we're kind of on the edge where we, we, we're on kind of the northern part of the Fisher Range and maybe the, a little bit of the southern part of the Martin Range, and so they overlap quite a bit. What we actually notice is years where we have uh, really deep snow for several years in a row, Fisher don't seem to do as well, and it kind of seems to push their range a little further south. Years where we have not a whole lot of snow, uh, in kind of open years, uh, fisher seem to do better, reproduce more successfully, survive better, and all of a sudden we see more fisher in the northern parts of the state. Uh, that also has something to do with a little bit with timber harvesting as well. All that being said, where we have Martin and Fisher, the mast tree that produces the greatest volume is beech. So American beech is an eastern hardwood species 
that is found all the way across the through the Appalachians and and all the way up into northern Maine, and where you have Martin Fisher and you have beech, you have hardwoods. You're basically talking about Maine, northern Maine, and the Adirondacks are are the key areas. So those are the small the two areas where Martin and Fisher trappers really are affected by mast. So it's a topic that doesn't affect a wide range of trappers. Uh, so it's it may maybe it doesn't have a lot of a wide appeal as far as the specifics. But I think if you think about the concept here and how this plays out, really this can apply to a lot of different species, a lot of different places and situations. So just try to think of that in, in the context uh, of where it is and try to apply that to maybe what might be going on in your trap line. <clears throat> so beech is very common eastern half of the U.S. and Canada. Uh, beech as a species has been declining over time. Uh, there are a couple reasons for that. They're the big One of the big reasons is beech bark disease. So there's this disease that's been around, I think, for like 40 or 50 years that kills these beech trees. Uh, if, if you see a beech, 90 plus percent of beech trees that we see here will have all these little bumps on it, and that's all from the beech bark disease. And uh, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not very great for the tree. The other thing is the disease... Uh, makes the tree less valuable because it can't be used for uh, like hardwood saw logs or veneer or anything like that. So the timber industry hates beech. Uh, they actually there's kind of an all-out war on beech up here. They're they're clear-cutting beech so they can plant um, softwood species, uh, primarily spruce. So beech uh, beech is not loved in, in the timber industry. Uh, beech is not loved by the disease, but beech is very much loved by a lot of animals in the forest. Uh, they, the beech trees provide the vast majority of the food, even with all the changes in timber harvest and everything. Beech still is, beech nuts are prevalent enough to be the primary food source for a lot of these species. For instance, black bears, black bear populations are are primarily driven by um, the the abundance of beech nuts in the fall. So why are beech nuts so important? Well, number one, because they are so abundant in these hardwood areas. Number two, they have a super high fat content. And that's something we'll, to think about when you think on fur bear diets and any animal diet in general. Uh, <clears throat> if you are in a cold climate, Fat is critical because fat keeps you warm. That's why the Eskimos uh, up in northern Canada and Alaska are are very keyed into uh, to animals that have a lot of fat. And you know they'll kill caribou that are that are high in fat. They will go out and kill seals and marine animals that for the for the fat. Uh, the fat is critical in cold climates. And beech nuts have uh, some of the highest fat content that, that around of, of any nuts. So these animals will gorge themselves on beech nuts, particularly black bears and smaller animals, uh, rodents like um, mice and voles. They will gorge themselves on these nuts uh, and, and uh, 
in take in that fat and that allows them to help keep warm and survive throughout the winter so so the beech nuts are a critical food now how does this play into Martin weasel and Fisher because these guys are predators right well a lot of people were surprised by the fact that uh, Martin and Fisher and probably weasel I don't know there's less study done on weasel but they eat nuts uh, Martin Fisher and weasel in these beech forest eat beech nuts when they're very abundant um, they will eat them and uh, they'll also eat they'll eat basically what's available so you know you get a lot of raspberries in in uh, the summer uh, or blueberries they'll go they'll eat raspberries and blueberries just like coyotes will eat grasshoppers when when they're abundant uh, these are not obligate predators they're they're carnivores but they there's some some flexibility there when there's something that's really abundant and, and has high nutritional value they will take advantage of that so so they eat nuts and they take advantage of that however uh, the primarily the the overriding uh, factor here with the beech nuts is squirrels mice voles and shrews all of these different rodents are consuming these nuts and the martin fisher and weasel are feeding on these rodents more than they are the nuts so in years where you have lots of beech nuts basically everything feasts uh, bears do not go into hibernation early they'll go into hibernation late when you have lots of beech nuts available and lots of other food um, another one other thing to point out is that the there's kind of okay so so beech nuts don't produce lots of fruit beech trees don't produce lots of fruit every year uh, they go in cycles and the cycle in typically for the species is between two and eight years but in the northeast uh, beech trees go on a two-year cycle so that means every other year they have a big mast year where the trees produce all kinds of nuts now going way way deep down this rabbit hole the reason for that is uh, as opposed to just having a certain number of nuts every year so the reason for the nut as far as the beech tree is concerned is to reproduce so it's a seed and in order kind of a, a strategy life history strategy if you want to call it for for these trees they know they don't know they don't think but uh, adaptively these trees are going to produce nuts for seed animals are going to feed on these and there are going to be a certain number that are left over that are not eaten that will fall to the ground stay on the ground not become eaten get covered up and they will sprout out and start new trees they'll become seedlings and become a new beech tree so that's the whole point for these trees is to to make sure they're able to reproduce so the species continues if they don't produce enough nuts um, the animals that feed on the nuts will consume them all and there will be nothing left over for seed if they produce the same number of nuts every year there'll be more animals because there's more 
there's nuts available every year and they will the number of nut um, consumers uh, as a general rule will equal will rise to equal the availability of the the food and there will be no reproduction so these trees have adapted over time to produce these uh, mast the, these abu huge abundances of fruit or nuts or seed uh, on alternate years or on you know on, on one year out of every certain number of years and they do this so that there's not always a high abundance so there's not always uh, you know an abundance of predators feeding on these these seeds and these nuts uh, but they have these pulses where all of a sudden you know there aren't a lot of animals feeding on them but all of a sudden there's tons and tons of food available so even though those animals engorge themselves there's always a surplus so so that's a strategy that all tree and plant species kind of take advantage of or most do and the reason I went way deep in that and I I thank you for for sticking with me on that is it's not just um, a strategy with within one species a lot of times these different species different uh, trees and shrubs and bushes will synchronize their cycle at which they produce this mast and what we'll commonly see and the reason for that of course is if they are in sync with the other trees then they're more likely to be um, produce more abundance than the there are um, consumers uh, like mice and voles and squirrels and bears and Martin and Fisher so what we typically see is not just a year where we have a year of high mass where there's lots of beech nuts that same year we'll have our apple tree production will be sky high our raspberries will be higher than normal our strawberries or blueberries will be higher than normal um, other uh, we don't have a lot of oak here but oak will produce more seeds um, what I'm trying to get at is there this accentuates these years of abundance and another uh, thing to drive the point home is on this two-year cycle of beech nut uh, production the density of nuts can change by 100 times on a year-to-year -year basis so in one year you have a low mast year they're producing uh, almost no nuts the next year on a high mast year those trees are going to produce uh, can produce as much as a hundred times the volume of nuts that they produced the previous year so these cycles are huge they are vast they swing substantially very very interesting stuff um, and, and you can go into it in detail there's been a lot of studies done on this um, and all of this is something I'm going over to make this one point. And looking at Martin harvest data from trappers in Maine over the years, uh, there is some really interesting information available, and it explains why 
uh, we have a hard time in years like 2017 and and it explains a lot of you know about my article that I wrote and uh, why it was so hard to get those animals in the boxes so you have two types of years right you have a year of large mast crop and then you have a year of um, essentially mast failure so so a boom year and a bust year and again typically this happens in Maine every other year and and in upstate New York so we're looking at number of martin harvested per trapper uh, among these years and uh, this don't get tied up in the numbers because basically it's just they go with all licensed trappers in the state and then all martin harvested so uh, most trappers like in Maine are not even targeting martin because they're in southern or central part of the state where they don't have martin so don't get caught up in the numbers but just compare the relative uh, relative numbers here so in a mast failure year which is every other year with not a lot of food available in the woods beech nuts and then squirrels mice voles eating those beech nuts number of martin per trapper 1.82 so just over 1.8 martin per licensed trapper in the state um, is is the harvest in years where you have a large mast crop like last year um, where there's all kinds of food available out there that number drops from 1.82 to 0.33 so as you can see it is a huge huge difference in martin harvest for on a year-to-year -year basis um, it just shows that um, the the food availability is really driving the harvest there so there's a couple things going on. I want to read you this hypothesis from scientific study that was done uh, on this this subject um, uh, that actually used this harvest data. Um, they know based on this, Martin harvest is strongly correlated with with beech mast, so the amount of beech nuts. Um, interestingly, another little side note: Fisher harvest is also correlated with beech mast. Uh, but it is a, a bit weaker of a correlation than the martin harvest. So what that says is basically martin are more uh, reliant on uh, this this beech mast, whether it be actually the feeding on the nuts or feeding on the rodents that eat the nuts. So here's the hypothesis uh, that comes from this study. It says, we propose two hypotheses as to why martin harvest rates vary inversely with beech nut production. So high beech nuts, low harvest, low beech nuts, high harvest. The first hypothesis is an offshoot of the observations Hardy made 100 years ago, and this was Manly Hardy, the old fur trader, that um, uh, talked about the same exact thing. Martin harvest decreased during years when beech nut production is good because their vulnerability to baited traps decreases. We hypothesize that during good beech nut years, small mammals will make heavy use of beech nuts and are easily preyed upon by Martin. This increase in prey availability and consumption of beech nuts by Martin lowers the attractiveness of baited traps to Martin. So that, in a nutshell, is the first hypothesis. There's more food available, they won't go into the trap. And, and that is a huge, huge challenge. Um, what 
I have brainstormed about this uh, a lot, and I'm trying to figure out how on earth uh, you can get an animal to go into the trap when he's not hungry. And this Joe guy on Trapper Man had some really good points and ideas on this, or he had an idea on this. Uh, and and I'm thinking about it. I actually made uh, so so. The animal has to squeeze through a small hole and go all the way to the back of this box to get at something that he's not really interested in because he's not that hungry, right? He doesn't need food, so why would the meat in the back of that box be attractive to him during a high mast year? So I thought about, you know, what else could attract him? And uh, one of the things is, the only thing I could really think of was gland. So, uh the presence of another martin or fisher or weasel in that inside that box maybe would be enough to get them to go in uh can you do that with a gland lure i'm not sure um if a gland lure is going to be adequate for them to i mean what a gland lure does basically it it indicates to the animal by smell that another animal has been in that box uh, I think it has a lot of value as far as comfort. The a Martin is going into the box. He's thinking about going in to grab the bait. He's not too sure about it. Oh, he smells another Martin's been in there. Ah, no problem. It was good for him. It'll, it'll be fine for me. And he shoots in there and gets caught in the trap. That's one use of gland lure. Uh, what if you're not hungry and you have no reason to go there? Is the presence of another animal having been there enough to get you to go in? I don't know. I, I, I'm going to experiment with it a little bit. I think I think you can. It has more um, merit in a situation where they don't have to go into the box, and that that's a whole other subject of using footholds and and getting around using these boxes. But if we're using the box. I don't know if that's enough. Now, now this other Joe guy pointed out, and he was really sharp on this, and, and it's a good observation that, uh, you know, these animals are really territorial, um, and so he tried. Uh, he had an animal that was refusing to go into the bait, and he tried part of a carcass of another animal, another fi- fisher, uh, inside the box, and had and caught a fisher going in to get after that other fisher. So if they think there's another animal that is potentially alive inside the box, maybe that's a way to get those big fishers uh, to go in and get caught. Because we know from, you know, based on research, uh, a marten will kill a fisher on site if it can catch it. Or uh, sorry, a fisher will uh, cut that out. A fisher will kill a marten on site if it's able to catch it. Uh, fishers are much bigger. Uh, they are very territorial. They will kill any marten because that's competition in, for food and space in their territory and in denning habitat and everything else. So a fisher will kill a marten on site. So if you want to get a fisher into the box. Uh, maybe a marten carcass is enough to to get him to think there's a marten in that box right now. I'm going to go take off after it. Now, 
if you're trying to get a martin to go into the box and there's a fisher carcass in there a martin probably going to be a little scared of that fisher uh, because because that fisher is going to try to kill him and he's a lot bigger than him so that's something to think about you, you got to understand you know what you're targeting uh, if a martin you know for martin going in the box maybe another martin would catch a male martin and uh, because they again they're very territorial so you have a martin coming in as a male and he smells a martin in that box and he uh, senses that there's another martin in his territory he may go right in the box and, and try to kill it so those are some things to think about and that that's basically just what i want to wanted to go over with the mustelids and mast years is to understand that food availability really impacts the catchability of a predator when when you're dealing with um, a trapping situation where you're relying on on bait and unfortunately in this case we're kind of relying on bait uh, there you you can't really blind set these animals very effectively their habitat there is so widely used and they pretty much the only way to catch them um, as far as we know at the moment is is using baited sets and legally we got to use these these links exclusion devices so we're stuck with the idea that when there's lots of food available out there like there was last year like a, last year was probably a record mast year you're gonna have really low catches um, when there's not a lot of food you're gonna be able to bait them in the box pretty easy you're gonna you're gonna be able to stack up the Martin and Fisher pretty good um, the challenge is trying to to uh, to get that 0 0.33 Martin per trapper uh, number um, somewhere between there and 1.82 so so to get that up in the poor years and so it's it's worth us getting out there and um, I'm, I'm gonna be experimenting with a bunch of different things and ideas and I would love to hear your thoughts on that um, jrodwood at gmail.com that's j-r-o-d-w-o-o-d at gmail.com uh, what do you think do you have experience with this uh, with food availability um, I bet I bet some of you trappers up north in Canada and Alaska uh, deal with this well maybe you deal with this with links I don't know I know you have fluctuations in in numbers there I don't know if you have fluctuations um, in your catches uh, or ability to get that links into the bait based on what the hair population is doing love to hear whatever it is love to hear what you have for for thoughts there or thoughts on other topics uh, but anyway it was great to have you here and tuning in and we'll catch you on the next episode of the trapping today podcast